Hi, my name is Pauline, and I'm a volunteer here at the Recovery Radio Network. Did you know that last year people logged into Recovery Radio more than 600,000 times and listened to over 875,000 hours of recovery? Please help us continue this mission of service to the recovery community by donating to our cause. Fire up your computer. Go to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. It's that easy.
this program than Father Mark was speaking. I came to the outline thinking of screaming and touching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me. I was protesting to everyone who would listen and a lot of people who didn't care that I was fine. Thank you. I had not done any drinking and I didn't need any therapy. And if we had sobriety in our house, we'd have no problems. I can't say that. I was straight faced. <laughs> <laughs> I really believed it then. I honestly did. I am so very grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery. Because what I know about my principles tonight, I know not because someone read them to me or recited them to me, but because they were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me. I was loved when I was pretty unlovable. I was condescending and patronizing and know it all. And I was forgiven when my behavior was normal and unforgivable. I think about that group now. Mercy, I was so sick. The more you get the sicker and know that you were, it comes out a little later in my story that I taught English for 22 years. English teachers are allowed to make up their own words. I adored this 
Charlotte. You could have two, everyone did. She died when she was 58, but she's not young, but it's too young to die, and I thought I could not stand it. She was in Florida, I was in Texas. I managed to get home to see her four times the last six months of her life. And the last time I was there, I was crying so hard, I stepped outside of her and into the hall. A woman I've never seen before or since, that could be into her from across the hall. And I said to me, your mother's going to be all right. I said, oh, you don't understand. Her illness is terminal. And she said, I didn't say she's going to get well. I said she's going to be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. Now, it's very much as if when I got to you. Now, this was not verbalized, but it's what I heard. You know how that can happen? It's as if you had said to me, you're going to be all right. If you had, I would have said, I have a very sober husband. And you would have said, oh, we didn't say anything about a sober husband. We said, you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very shaky, fragile marriage. And you would have said, we didn't promise you a marriage. We said, you're going to be all right. Because that's what I heard. And best of all, I have been, and I know that I will be, because everything else you've ever told me has come to pass. Now, then Richard told us how to make an Alabama talk. I have not memorized it yet in a year now. So I'm quoting, it says, Alabama talks can be and too often are merely a repetition of past or present sorrows. Sketching the background is important and has its place, but it's really the foundation of the talk. The best Alabama talk, the one that helps the most people to the highest degree, is one that brings out just how the program works and just how the speaker follows it. A good talk may be divided into three parts. How sick I was, how well I am, what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be of what helped me to get well. And so I want to spend the majority of the minutes I have with you tonight sharing with you what has helped me in my recovery. I agree with Father Martin, who said that if he's sitting out there, you're up here, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you were. I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida, almost to the Georgia border. On Christmas Day, and I don't want to say the year of our Lord, which one? Uh, <laughs> I've been doing that. <laughs> I reached the point where I not only lied about my age, but I forget what I said it was. <laughs> I'm just somewhere in between Blue Lagoon and Golden Pond, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Would you pull that in for a little? My family has now been in Florida for seven generations. I was the fourth generation. We, had, we were not first. Uh, first was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, Don't act like a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> There's still things I cannot wear or do because that's what tourists <laughs> <laughs> We lived the first 10 years of my life in Jacksonville, which is now, I'm not trying to teach you geography, but it's extremely important in who I am. We lived in Jacksonville, which is on the Atlantic Ocean and the Georgia border. We moved to Pensacola, which is on the Gulf of Mexico, and the Alabama border. I didn't ride on the border. I could ride my bicycle in 
sexually abused. But I was a very badly, badly battered child. I was a candidate for alimony, but then because I didn't want to bury my mother. And I didn't tell her. And for a few years, I got by with that. But you know, eventually the blood and the bruises and so forth, so I couldn't hide anymore. And when she found out, she was absolutely devastated and divorced my father. We had lived in abject and grinding poverty. I don't mean no luxuries. I mean not enough to eat for days on end. I mean insufficient Philippines. And we lived in a very blighted area of Jacksonville. I tell you that to explain this. Neighborhood children in our neighborhood are only allowed to play with me. I know today that their parents were understandably apprehensive about what was going on in my house. But you know, when you're four, five, or six years old, you don't know that. And I just felt rejection and rage. And it happened that we all went to the same neighborhood school. I could absolutely beat the socks off of it, enjoyed everything in it. Well, that didn't tell you revenge is not sweet. I loved it. <laughs> it tells us we ain't too important to me because it's my way up, up and out. And you know, it wasn't a good motivation, but it was a happy byproduct. I fell in love with learning, and I've never fallen out of love with it. To this say the most exciting thing I knew, I know is that it's a new idea. And you already get a fear of a new encounter. I'm sure you found that to be true. <laughs> and I think of Pensacola in my hometown because we get there the longest. And that's where we went back to major when I took the children to see their grandparents, you know. And I missed the beautiful, beautiful water and the incredibly white sand. And I get home nearly every year, but I don't want to live anywhere where I live. I have a lot of get homesick for places. I imagine you two places where we've been happy and places that we love. But I decided to go to college in Texas. We didn't have guidance counselors that, you know, before the earth cooled. And so I, I had to, you're such a guidance. Can I take you with me everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> but the best two best English department from the South, you know, in Waco and Duke University in North Carolina. I'm endowed if I had gone to Utah and where in North Carolina, I'll call it something else. The Pensacola was is a Navy town, and the people in the Navy who were from Texas spoke of it as if it were Halloween. Close to him, and he left my mother. That's all I asked of him. And they made her 
to have been absolutely beneficial in my life and our relationship. And I look at them and deal with little boys and white boys who were such fun when they were tiny. I, uh, of course, when I'm away from Texas, I have to explain a little. And not all of you are native Texans. I mean, it is a state of mind. You know that, don't you? Texans have never forgotten that they were once a nation. And that's the kind of pride that they feel. And I explain to them when I go other places that the Texas flag flies usually beside the American flag on a flagpole of the same height. In rare instances, it flies below the American flag, which we think is a great concession. <laughs> you know, this is true in the entire South. However, briefly, we were a nation. And if the bombing that other people don't understand, it doesn't mean we're better or worse. It's just that we remember that. There are many elementary schools in Texas. I worked in one for a while where actually young people pledge allegiance to the American flag every morning. They turn and pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. Now, when you're out of Texas, they think that's a bit much. <laughs> I tell them, I say, it's all right to love for you live. I say to them, I hope you love for you live. I certainly love where I live. My father-in-law, very ardent Texan law, you know, father of the told me that he had heard his children never to ask the man where he was from. He told if he was from Texas, he'd tell you. And if he wasn't, there wasn't my student where I said. And I tell people when I'm in northern British Columbia at a logging camp, or in Highlandsport, Massachusetts, and it's just not at all. I try to tell them we do most of this in fun. Most of it. They look at me like, yeah. <laughs> As you know very well, originally we had a governor and a lieutenant governor who were about our own admission recovering alcoholics. My husband Bob said that maybe in her state of Texas eligible for alum. <laughs> Children. Please don't let anyone tell you anything different. 
I was one of those children. I taught several thousand through the years, and I reared two of my own. I've seen no exceptions to that. We lived in Corpus Christi for a year. Then we lived in San Antonio for four years. and loved it. I left very unwillingly. My babies were born there at the next hospital. And uh, I go back there too every chance I get. And my husband was from Augusta in West Texas. Now, if you have been out there, you know the landscape is somewhat like that at the moon. <laughs> my mother thought I had moved to the end of the world. She called it a vessel. <laughs> I played 
loved to death. And, and that can happen. I was as obsessed with him as he was compelled to drink, and some of you have been those places. I would like you to think that I stayed with him out of love and loyalty. I did not. I stayed with him out of pride. And in case you did not grow up on the Alabama border, let me explain a little bit about deep south upbringing. Here again, I don't know what it's like today, but in my generation, women were given a specific and definite kind of upbringing. We had false napkins at our house that were patched, but we had false napkins. I was taught those things that were totally wrong, they just didn't go far enough. I was taught keep the men happy and everything else falls into place. I have no argument with that, except that I wish they had added, don't give up the chunks of your own personhood to do that. And they didn't tell me that. I was told by precept and example, Blanche Marie, repeat after me, you're a lady in the parlor, a wizard in the kitchen, a hussy in the bedroom. I was told that just by rote. And I don't have any argument with that, except I wish they had added, it's up to you to see that your needs are met. And they didn't, they didn't add that. So I would have changed them just a little. I was a steel magnolia long before for the play and the movie. My husband Bob, my second husband, who died a few years ago, used to say about abrasive women, he would say to me, she's all steel and no magnolia. <laughs> I, uh, I had a very inauspicious beginning, as you have heard. And I paid for myself going to an extremely expensive private university. I married the man I wanted, who was handsome and brilliant and could be charming when he chose to be. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them, and they're altogether remarkable, which I'll try to convince you of in a little while. And I had a career at which I excelled and which I loved, which is far more important. And I didn't understand people who messed up their lives. I had married a man who had everything. All his life. And I thought, you know, this isn't logical, but of course it's not logical. And I was trying to figure it out. So I had no understanding of my tolerance for people who couldn't cope. If I could cope, anybody could cope. You know what I finally got around to say back to my first sponsor? She made me repeat many times over the next few years we are not morally superior to sick people over and over. I did a few things right during those years. I used to say about accident, I know now it was by the grace of God. I never called Charles a drunk, I never thought of him as a drunk. He was a very fine man who drank too much. I didn't exactly know he was sick, but I knew he wasn't that way because he wanted to be. And I, uh, I had a God whom I worshipped and served. Now, God is going to stand here tonight. Oh, thank goodness. But uh, a lot of it was real and personal to me. I had a doctor who was my alumni before I found you, and I said that because he's the one who said to me, your children need one of the stable parents. Now, need is the operative word there. If I hear the word need, I'm putting in your hands. I have to watch that. <laughs> and he said he suggested I return to teaching. I had taught school before my children were born. But back in the 60s, a good mother people worked outside her home. He got on a prescription pad that I should return to teaching. I used to tell my students they were doctor's prescriptions. I don't think I got any of them by accident. I used to 
tell them that too, and we would agree sometimes we weren't exactly sure. Well, one of them and I were together, you know, we would talk about it. I am not a spontaneous person, I wish I were. I've worked my way up to festival, but I'll never be so And uh, so I thought about this for a year. And then I went to work. Uh, my own children were in, they were nine and ten. I'm so glad I could be at home with them for every day. Do you know that's almost impossible now? And I taught English to high school juniors uh, from in high school in Odessa for years and years and years. It was an excellent, splendid high school. When I left Odessa, I hated it even that more than anything there. Pride, heart, or over that, that anything there. If we had time, I would tell you about how the kids at Kirby told me about football. It would amuse you. Now, I was a long time ago, there were dates when I wish for retroactive birth control, you know? But most of the time, they enriched my life. There were people who suggested that 150 17 year olds every day would not constitute therapy. There were those who even suggested that if you were sick, I would do it. The thing is, I catch you, my mother living was mother, right? It was right. And, uh, and I like that. That was the first thing that I needed to be there. And they enriched my life tremendously. Charles never stopped trying to find an answer to what we thought was mental illness. Uh, see, he wasn't violent, so I didn't think alcoholic. He came to home, so he didn't get arrested. He didn't get uh, driving citations. And so he went through the ministry of state councilors. Both our local psychiatrists pretty quickly because, of course, he lied to them. And finally, uh, 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 this was the kind of success suggested that he might talk to a psychologist in Odessa that uh, worked with families. And uh, he did one two minutes, and it was the only time in his life ever that he got any counseling. He was really desperate. And so he went to see her. It was January 19. 64. Yes. I was still home from the school for the Christmas holiday. Do you have moments in your life that are so lifted, so embraced, that you remember everything I remember the carpet, the draperies, and everything about it? And the whole time that this woman introduced herself, of course I recognized her name, and she said, Your husband is an alcoholic, and he's a family illness. I need to talk to you too. All of my deeps out that we went out the window, and I said, you're out of your mind, and hung up. Well, I was brought up that if you really don't like someone, you're kind of cool. And I can do that. Oh, I can do that very well. But I wasn't either of those words in any of their meaning. Before I could leave the room, the phone rang again, and when I picked it up, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she didn't know. I hadn't told anybody. She couldn't know. One did not hear what was drinking in, in public. But I stood there with that phone in my hand, and I thought all the tears had long since been shed, and I cried and I cried. That was your first gift to me before I ever got to you. I'm not any time I please now. And he had for years. Charles used to say I could cry reading telephone directories on menus. <laughs> I cried at uh, 
can take a couple of weeks back home. If they don't use those words, I think I can get that message across today. I have uh, three sponsors in the medical division. And the second one is that it's in the and I'm still the father of all of them. Yes. Yes. But this one taught me something that has saved my parents from more than one occasion. She says that I'm faced with a challenging and difficult situation. I was asked myself two questions. The first is, what is in my best interest today? Wow! What a concept! You can't do that in your life. That is after some of you do not know me all of us. I have been because of the chiropractic surgery to remove my hand from a fire. <laughs> <laughs> so today I'm able to say, what is in my best interest here? And the second question is, how will I be able to select myself later? I had a painful divorce in 
Thank you. 
part of that area, is on the Dallas Papers in 1811. And the trade journals, you know, I never once put a comment after the 1857 on it.